This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Good day to you and welcome to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begays. This week, we're focusing on the Omicron variant. A lot of people in this country just getting up to speed about this new variant. But it's another twist in this ongoing pandemic. The Omicron variant, first spotted in Africa, now a case, at least one, here in the United States has been confirmed. And there will likely be more. So where do we go from here? A lot of us probably thought, uh, we're through the worst of this pandemic. We can take our masks off in many situations. But now, do we go back to square one? That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm sure many of you have worried about that. We're going to begin with Richard Reitinger, Vice President of Global Health at RTI International, a nonprofit research institute. He is an expert on COVID-19 vaccination planning. Richard, where do you think this variant is going to take the world now? This variant certainly is another indication that, uh, unfortunately, the pandemic is, is far from over. You know, what, what many public health experts have been warning for some time is that if the vaccination rollout at global level is not as effective as it can be, um, there will be new SARS-CoV-2 variants emerging on a regular basis. We had it before, of course, with the Delta variant that is now representing most COVID-19 cases um, globally, and now with the new emergence of this new variant named Omicron um, that has surfaced in the last week in South Africa, Botswana, and Hong Kong, and since then has been confirmed in more than 20 countries. Um, I think right now it's still very early days to tell how this will impact the pandemic globally in terms of cases, uh, of course, severe disease and deaths, as well as how it could affect the current efforts to curtail the pandemic, including the vaccination efforts, of course, that are underway. Much research will have to be done in terms of how the variant is affecting individuals with prior SARS-CoV-2 infection, individuals that have either been partially or fully vaccinated, Additional research will have to be done how existing treatment regimens are effective against this new variant. And then, of course, we have to study its epidemiology as well as clinical pathology. So is the new variant, for example, resulting in more severe disease? Is the new variant more transmissible than the, the current Delta variant? 
And are individuals that are getting infected also more infectious to other people, whether they have a prior uh, immune response to SARS-CoV-2 or not? So as you can see, a lot of questions will have to be answered. I'm sure we have listeners who've been following the news about Omicron, and they are truly concerned. They're worried about what this means for their health. How concerned should they be about this particular variant? Well, I think they they certainly should be concerned and stay abreast of new information about the research that will come out on Omicron in the next few uh, weeks. You know, if if I if I were to advise people who are very concerned about the Omicron variant emergence, it's to if they are not vaccinated to get vaccinated. If they are vaccinated, get a booster shot. And of course, also adhere to non-pharmaceutical interventions like wearing a mask, like social distancing, like using hand sanitizer regularly, and also perhaps limit their mobility. I think obviously, you know, similar to the other variants, the Omicron variant will spread at a certain pace. You know, with Delta, the Delta variant, we saw that that spread was very rapid with other variants, less so. Um, And so the verdict will be out there of how much it will spread globally, including in the United States. Given that now there are reports that are coming out that Omicron was already circulating back in October in in some countries, it's very likely um, that Omicron is already present here in the United States as well. So again, the next few weeks will will hopefully tell us how widespread it is um, as more um, genomic sequencing is going to be done on you know, newly infected uh, cases that are being confirmed in the public health laboratories here in the country. And one thing that I will say, there is, however, a note of cautious optimism that can be communicated is that it's very likely that although the Omicron variant has several mutations that may impact the effectiveness of the current vaccines, it's not going to be a situation where the vaccine efficacy that we currently have um, with the the current vaccines, which is around 80 to 90% for infections and, and greater than 90% for severe disease, that suddenly will drop to 20, 30, or 40%. In fact, um, even some news reports seem to be indicating that the, the vaccine effectiveness at the, um, against the Omicron variant is still very high. Um, and so people should take comfort uh, in that. And again, my main message then would be if you're really concerned, and if you haven't been vaccinated, do get vaccinated. And if you have been vaccinated and are eligible for a booster shot, then get the booster shot. The fact that Omicron was first discovered, as far as we know, in Africa, does that speak to the distribution of these vaccines? Has America done enough to distribute these vaccines to countries that don't have the access that we have? Certainly, there is, there is a link between the, the probability of a new variant emerging and the transmission epidemiology that exists at that particular locale, which of course can be influenced by uh, vaccine coverage. So, you know, I would, I would reiterate one of my earlier comments is that 
if we as a global community or, or humankind want to see the end of this pandemic, or at least see that, you know, we will have essentially a situation where COVID-19 is similar to other infectious diseases like, for example, influenza, uh, in terms of its transmission, in terms of its burden, and the way it affects our socioeconomic fabric, there is no doubt that we have to increase the vaccination efforts globally. And right now, we still have done a fairly poor job at that. At a global level, around 50% or so of the population are now vaccinated. Um, but there is a large inequity between high-income countries, middle-income countries, and then particularly low-income countries. And so in the latter group of countries, less than 5% of the population have been vaccinated against COVID-19. And so, yes, the U.S., as well as other leading you know, economies, should really focus on reducing that vaccine inequity that currently exists and make sure that the countries that have currently low vaccination coverage have all the resources necessary, and these can be financial, technical, human resources, to administer the vaccines to their populations at risk. You know, we have initiatives globally that have been set up for that purpose. There's, of course, the COVAX facility, to which countries like the U.S. have already donated many vaccines to. But also at country level, there needs to be support for platforms that administer the vaccines in, in urban and rural areas and, so to speak, put shots in people's arms. You know, it, it has to be sort of a comprehensive support from vaccine manufacturer to shipment um, and then at country level to support the platforms that already in most cases exist to administer the vaccine. And, and particularly the latter piece has not necessarily happened to a way where that allowed us at a global level to, to increase vaccination coverage, particularly in those countries that, that still have low vaccination coverage today. Richard Reitinger, thank you very much for your time. Okay, my pleasure. We're gonna continue our conversation about the Omicron variant which is Omicron. I have a, a really hard time with that word. I don't know why, but every time I see it, what I want to say is Omicron. But no, it's Omicron. Let's talk more about it with Mel Herbert. He's an associate professor of clinical emergency medicine. So Mel, what are you hearing from medical professionals about the kind of stresses they're seeing in the system because of COVID-19 at this point in this pandemic? I think uh, actually right now the medical professionals are feeling exactly like everybody else in the world. We all thought that we were getting to the end of this pandemic. And then comes another variant, which, you know, it's so early to know exactly what's going on here. But the real concern is that this is going to be significantly more um, infectious than even Delta. Um, it might not be uh, more potent, um, but even if it's not more potent, if it's the sort of the same degree of uh, disease that it causes, if it's significantly more infectious, it will harm a lot more people. That's just sort of statistically what will happen. So just like everybody else, the docs and everybody are exhausted. 
and the thought that we're going to have to go through this again, another big surge, is kind of terrifying. But the biggest thing, I think, is the moral injury that they're seeing and have seen with all of these unvaccinated patients who are in intensive care units, who are dying and don't need to. Um, that's really the biggest problem right now is that the docs, the nurses, everybody has just really been hurt um, by the fact that there's all of these patients, still so many of them, that don't need to be there, that don't need to be sick. They do not need to be talking to their family members and telling them that you know a loved one has died because there is a treatment for this that works incredibly well and it's called vaccination. So uh, they're just desperate for people to please, please get vaccinated because that really changes this disease from something that's terrible to not so bad. Well, especially here in the U.S., you still see a large number of people, large swaths of communities where, you know, folks just aren't getting vaccinated. And it doesn't look like that dynamic is going to change anytime soon. I don't think there's a subset of the population that will not move. They are just going to not get vaccinated no matter what happens. But I think we are seeing at some of the vaccination clinics here in Los Angeles and talking to other colleagues that there has actually been an uptick in the number of people asking for vaccines. So I think there's that penumbra, that group of people that are sort of on the fence waiting, and this new variant is scaring them, um, and they're coming in to get vaccinated. So there is a group of people, I think, that is now saying, okay, now's the time. I should get it. This sounds really scary to me. Um, but like you say, there is still the, particularly here in the US, more than probably any other country, there is a group of people that, for whatever reason, sociologically, for misinformation, will not get vaccinated. And I know that we can't fix that group. But for those people that are on the fence, this might actually push them off to go and get a vaccine or get a booster. You talked about medical professionals who are exhausted. Are they getting the reinforcements, getting the resources that they need? Here's the problem. The exact opposite is happening, actually, in a lot of places. I can't say this is true everywhere, but there is such an incredible rate of burnout, particularly amongst the nurses who take a lot of this burden. They're leaving the profession. And this pandemic is now nearly two years old. And the problem with a lot of the nursing schools and the medical schools is that they stop the students seeing patients. Um, so we've got a real crisis where we need more nurses than we've ever needed before. Many of them are leaving. And or they're transitioning to different types of work because of the stress of all of this. And it certainly doesn't help when you go to work and you're there to help and you ask somebody about their vaccination status or you ask them to wear a mask and they explode. Now, that doesn't happen a lot, but every time that happens, it makes these professionals wonder why they are bothering that they're, they're stressed and they've got colleagues that are sick and dying and then to be screamed at by patients who have uh, some political bent about being asked about their vaccination status. Um, it's really a difficult time for the healthcare community. I'm, I wish I had better news. It is so unfortunate when many of these nurses and doctors are facing at a time when they're just trying to help as many people as possible. But with Omicron, where do you see this going? I think there's a sense out there when you talk to people as they watch this unfold, they're wondering, when is this going to end? That is a great question. You know, we have to be very careful about how we talk about this variant because there's so little information right now. We know that it probably started in South Africa. It is very likely that it's throughout the world now um, because um, we're, every day, you will see every day there's another country as they're doing their sequencing, they're finding it in the uh, swabs that they've been doing. So I would not be surprised if this is probably through the entire world already. 
then the big question is, is it more infectious? The reason we think it could be is because there's a couple of mutations that look very similar to uh, the mutations which made Delta more infectious and some other variants. So that's a real concern. And Pfizer and Moderna scientists are very concerned that there are so many mutations on the spike protein that it might be able to evade at least in part the vaccines. So there's a lot of reasons to be anxious, but not too anxious. We will get a lot of data, but it's going to take a few weeks for this to come out. But if it is as infectious as we think, this will be the predominant virus within a few months throughout the world. That's just the way these things go. If That's a big if. If it is as infectious as we think, it will push out Delta and all the other variants very quickly. So uh, two months from now, it will all be about Omicron and nothing about Delta. Um, I'm just hoping that if it evades the vaccines, it's not too much. The, there's some you know, preliminary data that suggests that for the people that have been infected, they've had fairly mild disease. But we have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt because it's predominantly in people who are young and predominantly in people who have been vaccinated. But at least we're not hearing that those first group of people in South Africa and now in Israel, those patients do not appear to be dying at a rate that's higher than Delta. It does appear, again, very early on that their symptoms are mild, but these are mostly young and vaccinated people. Do doctors and nurses change their approach to treatment when you have a new variant like this? There's no real change to the treatment um, right now. The same treatments would hold. These newer um, antiviral agents that have come along are probably still going to be very effective against uh, this variant. So we don't really change uh, what we do. Um, it's still the same thing, you know, don't get infected and wear a mask. And then when you come to the hospital, it's about oxygen and uh, then it's about steroids. So there's nothing in the therapy that the docs and the nurses will use that will change. It might change them in their life. They might not be traveling. They might be doing the things that they would like to do between shifts, but actually on shifts, this doesn't change things very much. They've gotten very good at looking after lots of people with a respiratory infectious disease and uh, we are thankfully at the point now where we have at least the equipment and the sort of the algorithms that we need, unlike, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, that uh, crisis has now been averted. The crisis now is, you know, having a, a healthcare community that is robust in terms of its spirit and in terms of its numbers. That's where our real problem is. Mel Herbert, thank you. There is a civil war underway in Ethiopia. Most people in America don't know it. But there is a sizable population of Ethiopian Americans who have been paying attention, who are anxious for diplomacy to solve a conflict that has been ongoing for a year between the federal government in Ethiopia and the leadership of the northern region of Tigray. Thousands of civilians have been killed. Millions have been forced to flee their homes. Many more are struggling to find food to survive. Declan Walsh is the New York Times chief Africa correspondent. He is based in Nairobi, Kenya. Declan, the reason I wanted to do this is I'm based here in Washington, D.C., where there is a large Ethiopian-American population, and they are really paying attention to what is going on in Ethiopia. Can you tell our listeners what is at the heart of this conflict? Well, there's a number of things at the heart of it at once. On, on the face of it, um, it's a conflict very much around the leadership of Abiy Ahmed. He's this, um, you know, uh, Ethiopian leader who came to prominence very suddenly in 2018 when he became the prime minister. He was not well known at that point at all. Um, 
and he displaced a party which had ruled the country for almost three decades before that, called the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF. Um, and, you know, when Abiy Ahmed came to power, he was promising this very dramatic transition away from a period of autocracy and domination under this one party to what he promised would be uh, a, a prosperous future for the country and also one that would was undergirded by a transition to a fully fledged democracy. And as Ethiopia is, you know, this country with a very long and proud history and also the second most populous country in uh, in, in in Africa, um, you know, his the, the promise of his rule was very potent for a lot of people. And he immediately went off and made peace with Ethiopia's great rival and neighbor Eritrea, which won him the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. But in the last, around this time last year, we saw that process of transition go off the rails dramatically when tensions that had been bubbling or simmering for a very long time between Abiy Ahmed and this party that he displaced uh, erupted into a war. And the war started off uh, by what Abiy Ahmed described as a law and order operation in Tigray province, which is in the very north of the country, along the border with Eritrea, uh, was started off as a law and order operation led by the Ethiopian security forces, very quickly degenerated into a very nasty war that for the first six months was confined to Tigray in the north of the country, but now has spilled over into other parts of the country as the Tigrayan rebel forces, as they've now become, uh, have pushed back and in fact have started to advance towards the capital, Addis Ababa, and posing a greater threat than ever, in fact, to the, to the leadership of Abiy Ahmed and to, to his control over the country. Is it true that the rebels are just over 100 miles outside of the capital at this point? The last major position they claimed was about 120 miles uh, by road out of the capital. Um, uh, this is a very small place called Shewa Robit that they claimed about a week ago. And then just in the last couple of days, we've seen the Ethiopian military under Abiy Ahmed, who has now gone to the front lines to lead his troops from the front lines. They're now claiming that they've recaptured it. So the status of that town is is disputed right now. But there's certainly no doubt that the Tigrayans and another rebel force from, um, from, from the Oromo region called the Oromo Liberation Army, they're now fighting together against Abiy Ahmed's government. Um, and they are certainly within 120, 130 miles of the capital to the north. And then this other group, the OLA, working with the Tigrayans, they also claim to hold territory to the west of the capital as well, pockets of territory in rural parts of Oromia, also quite close to the capital. So there's very much a sense that this war, which until fairly recently had been confined to the north of the country, right up on the border of Eritrea, is now coming towards the capital. This is a civil war. And there are people here in America with relatives in Ethiopia, people who were born in Ethiopia. They are here in Washington. Some of them, they're protesting outside the White House in other parts of the city. They're pleading for the U.S., to provide assistance in solving this crisis. But they feel like they've been ignored or overlooked. Why do you think Americans should pay attention to what's going on in Ethiopia? There are so many reasons. I mean, it is 
bluntly put, as I said, the second most populous country in Africa. It's got 120 million, 110, 120 million inhabitants. Um, it is strategically located in the Horn of Africa. Uh, it, it borders with countries like Sudan, Somalia, uh, Somalia, a country where Al-Shabaab uh, is quite powerful, the militant group. It borders with Kenya, which is really the anchor of the region and a major American ally. Um, and of course, it's on the border with Eritrea, this country that it fought a very bloody war with just uh, 15, 20 years ago. So, uh, or, I'm sorry, not even that much, a, a war that ended in 2010. So, um, uh, you know, th there are good self-interested reasons for the United States to care about Ethiopia and what happens there. Um, but also it is, you know, it is uh, unique in Africa as a country that does not have a history of colonial oppression. Many people identify with that. It's a country that has a very long and rich history um, and, 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 and arguably the sort of pressures that it is now under, um, hold the potential at least to lead to some sort of fracturing the country, maybe even some sort of breakup on regional lines, um, if it keeps going down this path. And that would be, uh, a, a disastrous occurrence for Ethiopia, but also for the region more broadly, it could have all sorts of unintended consequences. So Ethiopia is a very important country and um, what happens there matters for the region as well as for Ethiopia itself. What kind of diplomatic efforts have U.S. officials engaged in as it relates to what's going on in Ethiopia? Has the Biden administration taken sides in this conflict? Well, it has certainly seen, been accused of taking sides by the Ethiopian government, uh, which has come under increasingly strong criticism from American officials as this war has progressed. Um, you know, Jeff, the first six months of the war uh, were a time when Ethiopian national soldiers, but also soldiers from Eritrea and also soldiers from uh, the Amhara region were effectively occupying or moving through the Tigray region. Um, and there was just this flood of reports of atrocities against civilians uh, that were taking place in the background as, as the fighting was going on. So you had a guerrilla war effectively being led by the Tigray fighters who had retreated to the mountains. And you had the Ethiopian federal forces that controlled the major towns and cities in that region, uh, but they were constantly coming under attack in the rural areas. As that was going on, there was this constant stream of reports of uh, ma massacres of civilians, of widespread sexual assaults on women in particular, um, of ethnic cleansing in the west of Tigray, where there is a disputed area of land between the Tigrayans and the ethnic Amharas. And so... Um, the, the, the accumulation of these reports of atrocities combined with, uh, you know, a spreading famine in that area that was as a result of the as a result of the war um, caused American officials to take an increasingly critical stance of the Ethiopian government and indeed of the leadership of Abiy Ahmed ultimately. And so um, from the, 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 the Ethiopian government started to push back very hard and is now actually at a position where it is openly at odds with the White House, at least in public, criticizing um, you know, Western policy, saying that Western policy and indeed often accusing Western media of being 
biased in favor, as they put it, in favor of the Tigrayans, saying uh, that there's been too much focus on those atrocities and not enough focus, for instance, on abuses that allegedly have been carried out by the Eritreans and so on. So it is, you know, it is, as any conflict, an extremely polarizing thing inside the community, inside the country. Those divisions are reflected in the Ethiopian diaspora, particularly in the U.S., where we've seen a very strong mobilization of Ethiopians who are supporting Abiy Ahmed or from particular um, ethnic groups such as the Amhara, who've been really leading the criticism of the, of the, of the media, criticism of Western policy, of, of American policy. Um, and we've seen, uh, of course, on the other hand, uh, you know, people who are affiliated with the Tigrayans or indeed with other parts of Ethiopian society like the Oromo or parts of the Oromo, and they are critical of the government of Abiy Ahmed. They say more needs to be done. So we're, you know, we're hearing some Ethiopians saying the US and the West need to intervene more. We're hearing some Ethiopians saying the West needs to keep out of it effectively. Um, but in the middle of all that, you have an American special envoy, Jeffrey Feldman, who was appointed as by the Biden administration as an envoy for the Horn of Africa region, just when this conflict uh, was really starting to take off. Um, and he has been very intensively engaged in shuttling between, well, to some degree, between the Tigrayans and the, and the, and the central government to try and, and, and through regional governments like the Kenyans, President Uru Kenyatta of Kenya. And they've been trying to, um, you know, behind the scenes, pressure both sides, uh, firstly, to stop the fighting. Secondly, they're hoping to open up humanitarian access to Tigray, where um, at the very least, almost half a million people are living in what the UN are calling near famine-like famine-like circumstances. Um, and, and, and they're hoping, of course, to bring both sides, force both sides to, um, to, 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 to some sort of political talks, to a negotiation, so that they can uh, find a, a negotiated end to this conflict, to this dispute, uh, rather, than a, rather than a military one. But as things stand right now, it very much looks like uh, both sides seem to believe that a military solution is still possible or that they can at least gain some advantage by continuing to fight. And so in recent weeks, even though we had the American Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was here in Kenya on a visit to talk about Ethiopia, partly just a couple of weeks ago, uh, at that point, there were some indications from Mr. Abi, the leader of Ethiopia, that, uh, you know, that, that he was amenable to making some concessions. We were told by sources uh, that he was amenable to making some concessions that might help to, you know, create confidence building measures and get towards some sort of a, a ceasefire or at least a halt in the fighting. Um, but in, in, in recent days, we saw Abiy Ahmed uh, very publicly leave the capital, say that he was moving his office to the front lines of the war to command the Ethiopian troops from there. And we've seen footage on Ethiopian TV of Abiy Ahmed, um, you know, in, in battle fatigues, addressing soldiers, uh, delivering speeches, uh, you know, and making claims about how the Ethiopian army is suddenly capturing a lot of territory after suffering quite a lot of losses. Um, so some of those claims are not yet confirmed, but it certainly shows that at least outwardly, Abiy Ahmed is signaling that for now, the route that he wants to go down is the fighting one. It is striking, given that he won the Nobel Peace Prize. I know that the Nobel Committee has been critical 
of some of the things that he has done. Yes, it's, it's probably been the most contentious peace prize that the Nobel Committee has awarded since it gave the prize to Aung San Suu Kyi back in the 1990s. Um, and, and there's a major difference between those two. They're often compared. But the difference is that Aung San Suu Kyi won the Nobel Peace Prize when she was a an opposition act. She was effectively under house arrest in Myanmar, and she was very much part of the opposition. Uh, in 2019, the Nobel Committee gave that peace prize to Abiy Ahmed when he was already the leader of the country. He was not an opposition figure. Um, and they gave him the peace prize largely on the basis of the peace deal he had signed a year earlier with the president of Eritrea, Asaya Safwerki, um, that was intended to end uh, decades of, of, of fighting, open fighting, but also the kind of cold war that had ensued between Ethiopia and Eritrea. So the world was very, uh, I mean, taken aback by how quickly this peace deal came about, but also people were inspired by it. When Abiy Ahmed came to power, he he was such an inspirational figure for people in Ethiopia, in the diaspora, and in fact, across the continent. You know, here was this young, uh, young leader. He was in his early 40s. Um, as soon as he came to power, he signs this peace deal with Eritrea. He starts releasing political prisoners from jails in Ethiopia. He opened up um, the, the press. You know, previously freedom of expression was highly constrained. He just, you know, he, he said that newspapers and, 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 and TV stations were free to operate as they wished. Um, and, he, uh, and he promised this sort of transition to democracy. And so all of these things combined, I mean, the, the peace deal with Eritrea was the headline item, but all of these factors combined led the Nobel Committee in 2019 to basically take a chance on Abiy Ahmed, award him the peace prize, largely on the basis of what he had done, but also I've learned from speaking to some folks who are involved with the nomination process and with the Nobel Committee itself. Um, they said that, you know, they believe that he was given the award partly for what he had done, but also to really encourage him in Ethiopia to continue even further down that path to make sure that Ethiopia would not revert back to this, the path that it had been on before. Um, and certainly on that basis, Ethiopia, unfortunately, has only been going backwards pretty rapidly, especially since this war started. Um, you know, apart from the fact that this war has really deepened some of the many of the ethnic divisions in the country and, of course, has led to enormous human suffering and possibly um, a, a famine in the north of the country. Um, it's also, uh, you know, we've seen civil liberties being eroded. We've seen in recent weeks um, security services doing a sort of sweep of neighborhoods in Addis Ababa, picking up people of Tigrayan origin because they're suspected of potentially supporting the Tigrayan rebels in the north of the country. Um, we're seeing other ethnic groups like the Oromo. They are, you know, the, you got to remember that Tigrayans are a very small minority in Ethiopia. They account for about 6% of the population. But the Oromo group, uh, they account for about one third of the population uh, some of the Oromo are fighting with the Tigrayans against Abiy Ahmed. Many others are disgruntled with the rule of Abiy Ahmed. They feel that it hasn't delivered for them, even though Abiy Ahmed himself is his father it, it was an ethnic Oromo. So we're seeing, you know, Abiy, the, the, the the promise, the the, the hope, the uh, 
you know, the, the changes that really inspired the Nobel Committee to kind of take a chance on Ali Ahmed when they um, awarded him with the prize, with the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. Many of those gains have been lost. And in fact, there's a real sense now that the country is going backwards because not, not only are all civil liberties being eroded, uh, you know, the country is plunged into war, but also a lot of the economic progress the country had been making has really stopped, um, you know, partly actually as a result of American sanctions, uh, you know, in its effort to pressure the Ethiopian government to step back from this war. The Biden administration ha threatened, has threatened sanctions against Ethiopia, well, against all the parties in the war, but including the Ethiopian government a couple of months ago. Um, and just some weeks ago, the Biden administration suspended Ethiopia's access to a duty-free or a, 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 a trade um, mechanism called a GOA, which allowed Ethiopian manufacturers to have uh, of certain goods, particularly clothing and so on, to have duty-free access to the U.S. Those rights have now been suspended. And in fact, we've even seen um, some factories in Ethiopia that make uh, apparel for major American brands like Tommy Hilfiger and, and, and brands like that. Th those those contracts have now been suspended as a result of the uncertainty in the country and also because the Biden administration has now suspended these duty-free privileges. So we're, it, it, the, the great tragedy of what we're seeing going on in, in Ethiopia now, Jeff, is we're seeing a, you know, a, a, we're seeing a war erupting, we're seeing famine spreading, we are seeing um, a, uh, a sort of political implosion where all of these divides that have been simmering for so long are erupting violently. And we're seeing economic backsliding uh, where some of the very impressive progress Ethiopia had been making for, for the last decade, certainly, is now in, in grave danger. Declan Walsh, New York Times Chief Africa Correspondent, thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America Changed Forever. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.